But the now is a really scary place when you're overwhelmed with grief. Yeah. The now is a very scary place when you're overwhelmed with grief because a lot of grief is trying to find that connection to the person in whatever part of the past that is. So it's like you're constantly yearning and humans are attachment-based creatures. We're social. When you lose that person, like you also lose that, like that closeness. And so being present means like sitting with the fact that you won't have that closeness if you wanted it forever again. Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're sitting down again with my girl, Shay. We had such an incredible response come from our last show we did together, Fuck Meditation, This is Crisis Intervention, which if you have not listened to, hit pause right now, go back and listen to the magic that was created the first time Shay and I got on the mics together. Once we released that show, Almost everyone I know reached out to say how incredible it was and the synergy and energy that her and I brought to one another. So taking that in mind, I have decided and Shay has so graciously accepted to be on the show at least once a month. With both of us being therapists, we have the goal of normalizing mental health and getting help. We dive into things like diagnosis and trauma and boundary setting and all of the things that I get a million questions about every day and how normal it is that you have those questions. Today, we dive into everything grief. So Shay doesn't go into this on the show because she's the most humble person I know, but Shay spent years and years studying grief and resiliency in grief. It is something we will all experience. It's something that none of us will get out of this life without experiencing. So why is it so difficult and uncomfortable for us to talk about? We dive into all of that today. And not only do we dive into loss of a loved one or what it's like to grieve that kind of loss, but how hard it is to grieve a romantic relationship or a breakup and how hard it is to go through the grieving process when that person is still around. I'm so excited for you to hear today's show, get some questions answered and know that you are not alone in this until next week. Enjoy the show. I don't like the stages of grief. We'll never use them with my clients. So I love that. I know know that's like a hot thing to say, but I don't like the stages of grief at all. I think that they give people like a false sense of like control and structure. Um, It makes things seem linear. I just don't agree with them at all. I think it's outdated. So we can talk about the stages of grief and why I don't like them. No, I I think that's even better because I think that some people are like, yeah, you move from depression into acceptance. And I'm like, no, I went like denial, bargaining, denial, anger, denial. Like, yeah. It, like, and that's the thing. It's like, it's circular, but also some people don't hit any of the stages and that's okay too. And that's normal. And then some people are like, like they like keep waiting for acceptance and it like, doesn't necessarily come the way they think it's going to come. And I think it's just an oversimplified like grief process that doesn't actually match really anyone. Cause I know like a lot of people, especially with like violent loss will never really feel any form of like acceptance, mm-hmm. at least not in the way that like people assume they will like, Oh, I'm okay. Like life's going to go on. And like, I'm done with grief or like, I'm okay that it happened. It's like, yeah, you don't have to accept the like loss necessarily. You just have to accept that the person's not still around. Right. That it happened. Like, even. Yeah. And um, so, but yeah, I don't, And some people like, they feel like they should be moving through the steps in a certain way. And so, I don't know, with clients that I am working with, I just don't like, we can use that as kind of like a loose framework, but let's not assume that you have to be bargaining at some point where you're not grieving in a healthy manner. Mm, That was something that hit me really hard when I lost my dad was how many people told me how I should be grieving. Yes. The policing of grief. Yes. I 
fucking hate it. <laughs> um, yeah. And I feel like I was like thinking about this before I came on today. I was like, I should probably warn people. I was like, I have a very morbid, dark sense of humor. So anyone who's listening, I have a dark sense of humor that I got from my dead dad. And so I was like, I feel like if I make the joke, like, oh, we're in the dead dad's club, it might be inappropriate. It might be inappropriate. Yeah. But I was like, that's like how I cope. Um, but yeah, people love to police grief, love to police grief. How do you see it showing up for your clients? Like, and for yourself personally, what was it like? Um, so like, I call it policing because it's like, oh, like, shouldn't you be okay by now? Or like, shouldn't you be able to do these things or shouldn't you be more sad? I got that a lot. I was, did the whole grieving process basically alone, um, took care. I was like the only person that was available. Like, so it was just me and my brother and my dad died. So I was the only person available to do all of that stuff. I was the oldest. I took care of like all of the cremation, the like celebration of life stuff. I took care of all the medical stuff. So I was like, we talk about like fight, fight, or freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. And I was definitely like the fighter. My brother was the freezer. And so I just had to keep going out of survival. And everyone was like really happy with the way I was grieving because I wasn't locked in a room crying. Instead, I was like, there's shit that has to get done. I'm the only one who's available to do it. This is what it is. And so I saw policing like that for me, but some people like they police, um, what are, what is it? Like they're like stugs, stug reactions. Have you heard of those? No, it's the sudden temporary, like uptick of grief. Mm. And so, and let me make sure. Yeah. Or it's not uptick. It's like upsurge of grief. There we go. And basically like randomly, you'll just have like this really overwhelming sense of grief. And it goes back from being kind of a normal grieving process to like the really acute immediate version that you felt when the loss was very recent. And so some people will be like triggered and other people like, it's been three months. You shouldn't be crying over that. Or it's been a year. Like, why are you having such a big reaction? And it's like little pieces of grief because people are really hesitant to talk about grief, despite the fact that everything dies. Oh my God. (laughs) No, like, okay. So you joked earlier that you have a really morbid sense of humor at listeners. The reason Shay and I get along so (laughs) is our, our shared love for guy liner and skinny jeans back in middle school Mm -hmm. and our morbid dark sense of humor. So if you're not into that tune out now, um, (laughs) probably get dark. Um, but I totally went through that. What you said too, was the same Mm. I didn't have a sibling or anything. It was just me. And so I, and that's kind of always been my tendency. Um, it's why I'm typically a pretty avoidant person. Like I'm very good at like, I'm going to look out for my shit. I'm going to stay in my lane, like stay out my way. And when my dad passed, it was very similar. I immediately went into like my to-do list and I thank that process now because without trying to sound too dramatic, Like that is what kept me alive in those moments. Mm. Like I had something bigger than myself to do. I like stayed busy. It physically got me out of bed every day because I had meetings with lawyers or planning, you know, the celebration of life, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So it kept the ball rolling forward. And something I found at the end of that process, you know, it took about a year, um, was that, you know, you're talking about Stug, it it was very similar to that. Cause I like sat down and looked around. And it was like, now what? Mm-hmm. And it was almost like all the grief that I had kind of like pushed away or put off came just like crumbling down on me. Was that a similar experience for you? Or do you see that happen often? Yeah. I see that happen a lot. Um, like particularly with individuals who like find fulfillment in staying busy or like that is how they cope by doing, um, I tend to be one of those people. You also very much come off as that person. So those people, it tends, that's again, why I really hesitate to ever use the stages of grief because sometimes people don't have the choice. Like they just have to do that to survive. So they might start grieving a year later and that's also okay because they didn't have the luxury of grieving immediately after the loss. And so I think that there's just, like, again, you can have this really big emotional reaction. And for me, it actually happened right around two years. 
I think, cause there was so much going on that it took me the full two years. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh, like I had questioned it between one and year two. And I was like, maybe I have some like disordered grief. <laughs> I was like, maybe there's something wrong with me. But then it was like, I just didn't have the luxury of grieving really is what it was. Yeah. How, what a crazy reframe to pose grieving as a luxury. Holy yeah. shit. That just blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is on so many levels. And like if we think about PTSD or trauma um, and all the attachment stuff that comes up with grief, the ability to grieve means that you have to like feel relatively safe enough to do so or be in an environment that allows for that because a lot of times people will shut down and like we have to. And so some people are lucky enough and like a lot of cultures are different. They have rituals, but they have people who come and they help them and they care for them and they support them. And some people really don't, some people have to do it all on their own. And so until they feel like they can grieve or process the situation, they just keep moving. And so, yeah, it could hit year two and you're like, what is happening? Why am I so sad all of a sudden? Like, why do little things make me cry? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, like a flash of a memory. And you're just like in your car sobbing. You're like, what is going on right now? You know, when it would happen for me, what, especially more in the acute phase, like early on. And then again, after that, like year mark for me, um, was it would happen. Okay. How do I want to phrase this? Actually, I, a lot of times in my life would use exercise and this is like Mm -hmm. a strange thing, but would use exercise to numb out. Um, and Yes, it is a healthy, uh, like self-care coping mechanism to work out, but it got to a point where mine wasn't, I was like, if I can just throw everything, all of my feelings, all of my sadness, all of my emotions into this workout and really focus on my somatic experience, which at the time I was competing in CrossFit. So it was like, this is really fucking hard. My body hurts. I was like, if I can just focus on that, then I don't have to focus on these other things. And when I got to that about year mark, almost every workout I would finish, I'd be on the ground, like sweating and miserable. And then boom, grief would Mm -hmm. also hit. And so not only was my body like physically (laughs) aching, but every emotion was just like pouring. I imagine, um, in Anchorman when he's like, I'm in a glass case. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 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 So much. Yes. I I mean, I did the same. It wasn't how I, was like I took up kickboxing after my dad died and I was kickboxing with a fucking broken wrist like I was like in a sling and like trying to just like throw like like anything with my non-broken arm and pray that when I would kick it wouldn't like I wouldn't fall or like my sling wouldn't drop (laughs) I was like I have to feel something I must feel (laughs) I have to feel but it was I think I was using it as like a especially like like how wild to like try and kickbox with a broken arm and a sling. But I think a lot of people do that. And like, we maybe chose the perceived healthier coping mechanism, right? Like exercise, but a lot of people do that with substance use. Like they'll drink till they're sick. Cause Mm -hmm. like it's a distraction and it like, it almost is reassuring to feel bad physically. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would remind me that I was here as weird as that sounds. And that's, that comes up with a lot of my self-harm clients too, you know, like people come into to therapy and they're so ashamed of their self-harm and people have been like, you know, same way people would tell us you're not grieving enough. Mm-hmm. People would like, look at, you know, my clients, like they were these like terrible heathens and just like broken people for mm-hmm. self-harm. And the first thing I do in session most mm-hmm. often with that is reframe it and say, okay, like what about the self-harming is actually soothing to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like what about it is actually keeping you here and in this moment? And so many people say exactly what you just did. Like it makes me feel something. Mm-hmm. And as strange as that sounds, right? Like we can get all woo-woo and therapists mm-hmm. and be like, that's the beauty of the breath and meditation is it brings us to the now. Mm-hmm but the now is a really scary place when you're overwhelmed with grief. Yeah. Yeah. The now is a very scary place when you're overwhelmed with grief. Cause a lot of grief is trying to find that connection to the person in whatever part of the past that is. So it's like, you're constantly yearning 
and humans are attachment-based creatures. We're social. Like we really are, are like it's human drive. So like holding hands, um, hugging, I think for like 20 seconds even can release oxytocin, which helps release, like reduce blood pressure, stress, all sorts of like other good things. So it's like when you lose that person, like you also lose that, like that closeness. And so being present means like sitting with the fact that you won't have that closeness if you wanted it or ever again. Mm. And that is fucking terrifying when you're grieving to know that that's like not ever available. Yeah. And I know you hate the stages of grief, um, which mm. I love because I think that's the most soundbitey thing I've heard in a while. Super <laughs> 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 sight. Um, but just to kind of recap, for listeners that are not aware of what the stages of grief are, will you list them? And then yes. if you guys haven't already guessed, like we're probably going to shit all over them, but <laughs> yeah, give our opinions on them. So in order, let me try and remember in order. It's like, so first there's denial, then anger, then bargaining, then depression, then acceptance, acceptance is last. Um, yeah. So a lot of people like the denial, like they're not really dead. Um, that didn't really happen. Like I, like you're just like, not really even like, I call it kind of like the blur. You don't even really recognize what's going on around you. Um, anger, pretty standard people either angry with the situation, angry with the world, angry with God, angry at themselves. Like they're feeling all those regrets. Then there's like the bargaining. Why me? Like, or why couldn't it have been me instead? So if like, think of a parent losing a child specifically, like what could I have done? Like, is there anything I could do differently? Um, the depression, which I don't really like to use that term because you can't diagnose depression when someone's grieving, at least not in the first two months. Like it's truly like a very bad clinical practice. If you, so anyone who's listening, if a therapist tries to give you a diagnosis of depression, when you're grieving within the first two months, leave, go um, somewhere else. Yeah. Go somewhere different else. Shrink, it is not ethical. <laughs> <laughs> it is not ethical. Um, so depression is kind of weird, but it is like what we think of as depression, like the loss of interest in activities, um, like depressed mood in general, depressed states. Sometimes it's like under eating, overeating, and then the acceptance, um, which again, the reason I like, I think these are good as a very, very extremely oversimplified concept of grief and how we experience grief, but really like, like who's to say how we accept the loss? Like, unless there's like some disordered aspects, like we're seeing the person all the time, like physically, like experiencing like visual hallucinations or auditory hallucinations or something like that. But even then within the first year of grief, there is like a lot of literature, just some people connecting that way, like having dreams about the deceased or whatever. So again, acceptance is kind of a weird one. Um, it might be that like you accept the circumstances around the loss, you accept that they're gone, but those are the stages, quote unquote. Again, and like you said, <laughs> from a very like oversimplified 30 foot view, mm -hmm. This sounds encompassing, right? Anyone yeah. who's experienced the loss has probably experienced these stages. Um, and so we're not here to say like, we hate the <laughs> grief because we think they're all bullshit. It's because they're oversimplified that we have mm -hmm. kind of a hard time with it. So I really want to hear you start poking holes in these different yeah. things. Maybe we can start <laughs> with whatever works best, but I'm thinking maybe we start with each stage and then we can kind of dive into yeah. that. And I, I'm not here to like, be like, oh, there's so many holes in these stages. I'm really more so like, there is no such thing as a stage of grief. Like there is no linear direction in grief ever for any reason. And there is like almost no evidence actually that proves that people move from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And they experience denial first. Like some people like are extremely angry because that's the most comfortable emotion. Like they're so mad at the world. Like they kind of skip over that or they just go straight into like the depression, like just so sad. And I think a lot of these things alone are just influenced by the type of loss you're experiencing. And so again, that's why it can't be a true stage theory because the different types of loss are going to impact the different ways you start grieving. And the so, losses that you have sustained before mm -hmm. this, like what worked exactly. for you you know, we've talked about in our last podcast, um, 
coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms. And so what might have worked, think if you went through a major loss at six years old, even though our logical brain can be like, yeah, at 30 years old, I would totally handle it different. You typically don't, unless you've done a lot of work around it. So to think that, yeah, this would be linear is, is kind of, kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if it works for people, it works for people. Cause there is a sense of comfort in structure. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't use it if it's helpful, What I'm saying is it can be incredibly unhelpful. And if you're finding it unhelpful, please don't use it because there's other ways to look at grief. Mm. And what ways are there to look at it? All sorts of ways. Um, I like to look at grief through an attachment theory. (laughs) Of course, you know, we both love attachment. Um, I really like, so that to me makes the most sense. If you're looking at grief through attachment, it's like, how do we know this person? Like, what was our attachment with them? Like, how did it look? Cause that is going to influence if we have a really like turbulent relationship. Like I'll be the first one to say, I had a very rocky relationship with my dad for a long time. So my grief was very much influenced by my attachment. Cause there was like a lot of regret for like missed opportunities and lost time. Um, there was a lot of anger for like him, not being more or doing more to like help build that secure attachment. Um, Cause we had a very insecure attachment for a long time. So it was like, there is all sorts. So looking at it through that theory, it's kind of like, I can heal like my wounds, my internal wounds while looking through this. And then I think it's healthy for people. Again, everything dies. <laughs> and I'll be the first one to say, my dog is never going to die. Like she won't, if you anyone won't. tells me otherwise, I'm going to, they're a straight up liar. They're lying to my face. <laughs> like, I'll acknowledge that. Like I have my own, like, no, but people probably should. And like, I'm not saying they have to, but they probably should recognize their attachment to their loved ones. And like, I think it can be healthy to kind of acknowledge that, like, how do I care for this person? Like, what is my relationship with them? How might that change? Like, I don't know. I think about it even with my significant other. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I lost you, my world would end. But then I was um, around my dad's anniversary. I was like, I don't know what I would do if I lost you we had this really in-depth conversation and it was, he was like, you'd be fine. Like eventually you would be okay. And he was like, let's talk about what that would be like. So talking about our connection and the way we kind of, and he's like my everything, he's basically provided a foundation for a secure attachment. So he's my world. Isn't but- it crazy how that works? <laughs> yeah. <It's-> also <laughs> side note, asterisk for most of you that are in therapy your therapist got into this because we were fucked up. So yeah. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> healing the healer and paying it forward, but sorry. Um, yeah. 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 It's, when we start to really experience secure attachment, it's terrifying mm-hmm. at first. And then you don't know like how and why you ever didn't have it before. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so that part was healing and I found my secure attachment through my significant other, but people can find it in other healthy relationships too. But that's also a good way to kind of understand grief and to like look at loss and kind of that healthy healing process. Cause I think secure attachments and I don't know the steps on this or like the literature, but from what I've experienced <laughs> and what I've seen um, little background uh, I volunteered at, uh, like from like 16 to like, I don't know, 25 or 26 or something with kids with, um, cancer and terminal illnesses. And so I saw a lot of grief growing up. And so like when there is like, even when it's a really horrific loss, like a child losing their life, like that really secure attachment can be really healthy in the grieving process. Mm. It can be like really useful because it helps reframe a lot of that versus like a really insecure attachment. There's a lot of like I've experienced firsthand and I've seen with clients, it's difficult to reframe some of those things because it's not just triggering like what you want in that person or like what you miss. It's like also sometimes triggering the hurt that that person caused. And so through an attachment lens, understanding grief in that way, shape or form, I don't know, you can kind of jump in here if I'm rambling or like moving in circles, but (laughs) understanding grief through attachment like is also useful for like us to help like prepare for end of life. It's helpful in therapy to like, um, like comprehend kind of what we're going for. Like, 
I just, again, I work from an attachment perspective and a needs-based perspective. So it's like, what is this grief doing for me? And like, what is my unmet need? Like, why is it that I'm trying to think of something that was like super triggering for me? Um, getting rid of my dad's clothes. Mm. Like, <laughs> I still was... have fun fact. My dad, when he passed away, had like, I'm not exaggerating. You guys, I wish I was exaggerating this number. He had like 600 Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> Mine too. It was like Hawaiian or like, what are they like? Tommy they Bahama. Like, Tommy Bahama. I still have some of them. I, have, I won't let go. <laughs> I won't let go either. So guys who are listening, I know I keep trying to normalize this. Like my dad was six, four and wore a two XL. Okay. Like there is no reason for me to still have these shirts. I'm not going to wear them. And yet here I am with them. So. Yes. I was, that was like the hardest piece, but like for me, that attachment was like, I felt like I missed out on like, like just being around him, like casually. So getting rid of his work clothes was easy, but these like Tommy Bahama shirts that are like wild, like <laughs> it's like, like, I just, I can't even explain the print. Like some of them, like, why would you, sorry, let me put this on. Can you hear the dinging? No. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Ignore that entirely. Um, <laughs> so like I was having a really hard time and I think it's because like, that was like what I, like my casual dad, like the dad that I kind of just wanted to be around all the time. And so like, for me, like holding on to that was like holding on to the hymn that like I wanted. Mm. And so exploring that. And I looked like a, like I needed all sorts of help after my dad passed. <laughs> I had so much stuff. And so I'm like, like I was straight up hoarding at one point, like I was, there were just boxes stashed places. Cause I didn't know what to do or how to like get rid of it. Cause it was so like, that was traumatic for me. Cause getting rid of it meant getting rid of him. Mm-hmm. And so that piece was like very much very big in terms of attachment. Like I was holding on to like the little pieces of him that I wanted to remember. And it was hard to get rid of any of that because like that was getting rid of the good. And then like, cause you know, memories tend to focus on the negative cause it keeps us alive as a species, but it's really hard to like, when we have tangible items or like, sometimes it's music or literature, movies, whatever it may be. And like, that's where I find like that attachment piece also comes in. It's like, how do we hold on to them? Like the pieces that we want to remember while like working through the parts that we are okay letting go of. Yeah. So I want to flip that question back to you. How do we start to do that? And how do we integrate the positive, happy memories without having to hoard and hold on to all of the positive, happy things? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, as someone who studied grief, (laughs) you're asking the right person as someone who's experienced a lot of really traumatic grief. Um, it, it's hard. It's really hard. So as, so I'm going to come from like the clinician perspective first. Um, there are a lot of like, really like, um, in grief therapy and like, just, I think like the anatology, there's like the continuing bond, which really only like, it's really popular here in the U S so people from other cultures, if they're listening, like it's kind of an abstract concept. Um, but the continuing bond here in the U S is basically like finding a way to continue the relationship um, post-death. So while we continue living, like, how do we maintain that relationship with the deceased? And there are ways to do it. Um, like letter writing is really big. Um, but there are a lot of people who have a really hard time, like verbalizing or even like conceptualizing their grief in terms of words. So there's other ways, like you can like, um, sometimes bringing in a picture or like finding, like a favorite food or like even a song. Um, I've even thought about like locations kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So sometimes when it's really difficult and there are no words and it is just straight, like emotive grief, it's like, let's sit and think of a place where you spent a really happy memory together or if there are none. So some people who have like lost family and they haven't had that chance it's like, okay, well imagine a safe place in your mind. Like what is a place that makes you happy? Now let's like, think about like, let's notice the smells. There's like some imagery work. Let's like, for me, it's always a beach. So it's like, can I hear the waves? Like what's going on around me? My dogs are probably there. And it's like, now look to either side that you feel comfortable with and like, imagine that person sitting there with you and sharing this moment. And like, what is that like for you? And what does that bring up? So there are ways to go around it because not everyone wants to like write letters. Um, and 
writing letters is kind of like journaling in a sense where you can literally just light it on fire when you're done or <laughs> keep it in a box and read it at a later date. Um, but as a clinician, like those are some ways to like continue like maintaining the relationship in a healthy way, right? Where like every time you get that food or like my dad was a big wine drinker. So on his anniversary, my brother and I, regardless of where we are, go get a nice bottle of wine and FaceTime each other and cry <laughs> like mm-hmm. healthy. So little like rituals can be helpful too. So um, like little things you do like surrounding the anniversary. Um, I know holidays are coming up and holidays fucking suck when you're grieving. Whether or not you celebrate holidays, you see other people like collecting with their group, whether it be like family, friends. And so that can be really triggering. So having those little things that kind of maintain that relationship and honor the deceased while allowing you to continue living your life can be super helpful. Yeah. I, holidays are always hard. And I, so my dad was a pilot for those of you listening that don't know. And he always promised like my dad's side of the family always did Christmas Eve. So it was always his promise that he would be there. Um, But oftentimes he would be coming from a trip, right? Like he'd fly into San Francisco airport my grandmother lives just outside of San Francisco and he would like get to Christmas Eve at some point. And the first, okay, not even just the first, first, second, third, fourth, fifth Christmas that he was gone. And I was sitting at my grandma's house. Like I would just, like my eyes would subconsciously dart mm. the front door. Like yeah. when is he going to walk through? Like, I'm so ready to see like his <laughs> outfit, hat, like stripes on the shoulders, walk through the door and he hasn't. And that was really, really tough. Yeah. What is Christmas like for you now? Um, you know, I've taken some solace in creating my own traditions, mm-hmm. um, especially because I had a really kind of turbulent childhood, especially around mm-hmm. the holidays. Um, I mean, you get this mm-hmm. with forced parents, you're just carted all over the place. So the holidays have always been a really destabilizing time for me. Um, And so last year I was kind of like, fuck it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm so done living in someone else's story about what this should look like. You know, holidays Mm -hmm. should be the tree and your family and the puppy under with the fucking bow. (laughs) I was like, that's just so not my story. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know why I'm still continuing to try and Mm -hmm. live in it. And so my best friend came over and one of our good friends that also has a similar childhood. And we like triggered a brunch and yeah. like got kind of stoned and yeah. <laughs> and he'll appreciate this. We listened to pop punk. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like, and it's the most fulfilled I felt during a holiday in a really long time. So to answer your question, that's kind of my new my new tradition or ritual, if you will. Um, what about you? What's it like? Um, I am not a big holiday person because it feels like it's a forced time to spend with people where I just like spending time with people and like very social. I like being around people. So I feel like it's a mandatory socialization. So I've always been a little weird. And then after my, um, dad passed, it was always a little weird because it brought back memories that I didn't even realize I had. Um, and holidays again, divorced parents, very hard. Um, some days you're like in a car for eight hours going from one house to the next. And that is your Christmas day. Not like necessarily entirely at the fault of your parents or anything like that's doing the best they can with what they have, but there's a lot around holidays. So, um, yeah, my partner and I decided we were going to kind of avoid Christmas if we can, um, every year, just because we don't feel like it's necessary. We'd rather see people just because we like spending time with them. And so we've been trying to do a trip every Christmas and go somewhere just and like really enjoy each other's company and like reflect back and like on our happy relationships and like our fond memories and really kind of do it for us and make sure like we're acknowledging like the parts of holidays we do enjoy and those we don't. And, um, yeah, definitely making holidays more about us has been super healthy. So this year we're like, <laughs> we kind of collected all of our brothers and there's a lot of them all <laughs> going to Mexico. <laughs> Hell, and so, yeah. 
Yeah. And so we're going to do that and just drink tequila and I know I meme you sent me the other day. It's like yeah. the meme listeners was this person at the bar, like having this internal conflict, mm-hmm. like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Me. Yeah. Who wants to keep it? <laughs> yes. It is. Yeah. Don't ever, if anyone that was ever around me, don't let me pour you a drink. Like you won't remember anything the next day. Even if, said, like, <laughs> even if it is not a mixed drink, like pour you wine until you can. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And I don't know where I learned that, but it is what it is. So that is our holiday tradition. Um, or at least we're starting it. But I think a lot of people reframing the holidays, kind of like how you did. You're like, why am I reliving this thing that has never consistently made me happy? And I still don't feel happy doing it. And a lot of times people, which it can go either way. Some people really like to uphold those traditions because they feel like it helps them connect. And that might be that secure attachment, right? They have really fond memories of Christmas with their loved ones and their family and other people don't. And so why continue doing something that is hurtful or like makes you uncomfortable or makes you sad or makes you feel like something's missing. Um, like if we didn't enjoy it while they were alive, why would we all of a sudden enjoy it when they're dead? Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to kind of transition the conversation still around grief, but in a different container. Um, because one of the hardest grieving processes that I've gone through too, um, and that I see my clients go through is grieving the loss of a romantic relationship Mm. um because there's you know we can Mm. we can say what we want about the stages of grief but there are similar stages and for Mm. myself included it was almost harder to get to the acceptance piece because my biggest acceptance Mm. was like he's gone Mm -hmm. like I just have to like accept that and it took a long time it still takes some time like Mm -hmm. you know I'm not here to say I'm perfect um but to have to accept that whole grief and accept the loss and have that person still be around, have that person be a text message away or a fucking Instagram, like, check away, you <laughs> know? I'm like, yeah. even if you guys have blocked him, we know, yeah. we know that you have gone and unblocked exactly. and creeped <laughs> a little bit and blocked yeah. again. So what does that grieving process tend to look like and how does it kind of connect to this conversation? It's pretty similar actually. And there's lots of different types of grief. Um, and romantic grief is absolutely a type of grief. Um, and ambiguous grief too, is like also something that I think I'll just touch on briefly. Cause I think a lot of people forget about it. So we don't know what happened. Right. So I like, think of like ghosting, like we just don't know, or like say someone like runs away or like disappears for whatever reason, we have no idea what happens to the person. So we don't know if we can grieve or not, because we don't know if they're coming back or if they're gone for good or any of those things. So there's that kind of ambiguous grief that's definitely notable, but then relationship grief can sometimes almost be worse because they are alive, (laughs) right? Like you could reach out to them. Like there is like the finality is not as extreme because who knows, like Mm -hmm. maybe things could be different or like, how do you come to terms? And I think maybe even relationship, you might find more of those stages in a more like, cause you might start bargaining, like even with the person, what can I do to get you back? Oh, or totally. they might bargain with you or like, how do I accept that they're with someone new or straight up? They just don't want to be with me. Like, cause that's not a great feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we've all been in those relationships where you're like, what the fuck? Like, why don't you want to be with me? Or like, sometimes it's even like you grieve the loss of them before you're even like separated officially, like, and you're like, I want, like, and you can't accept the fact that you don't love them anymore. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, the relationship's over, but you like, you know, you don't love them in that way. And how do you accept it and move on? Like, say they're your best friend, but for whatever reason, it's just, it's not working. So those like that kind of grief, I think can be like very complex because there is no like finite it's done. Like, cause we don't really know. Right. I had an ex um, and I'm sure my friends that listen to this show know exactly who I'm talking about, but we were that kind of tumultuous relationship where um, the breakups and get back togethers and breakups and get back togethers was just like constant. And um, 
ultimately we broke up and within like three months of breaking up, he got married. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I remember being so destroyed, like his, I'm still very, very close yeah. to his family and bless her heart. His mom reached out to me and was like, Hey, like, I know you don't follow my son on social media, but like, you know, his friends. And so like, before you see it and it blindsides you, I want to let you know, um, that he's engaged and it just like, oh my gosh, talk about like this questioning of self-worth and like we were together for years and what do you mean in three months he's Mm -hmm. like found his person and did some work around it and then they got married very very quickly after the engagement and by the time he got married I had this like weird acceptance around it where I was just like wow like I was never like Mm -hmm. clearly from the years of us like Mm -hmm. breaking up and getting back together like I was never going to be that person for him. And there's a huge part of me that is so happy that he's found a person that can be right. That like mm-hmm. fills all of those, like checks all those boxes mm-hmm. and does all those things. Um, but I always joke that it was like the ultimate reframe ever for me. To- <laughs> oh yeah. The biggest thing that made me accept my relationship was over was when he married another woman, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which that's a pretty good reason to reframe. Right. <laughs> that gives you kind of like some closure, some like, yeah yeah but that's also super hard because that is like I mean I don't want to put words in your mouth or make assumptions but it can be kind of like a slap in the face like oh, wow totally. it's also on some levels because I've had those relationships too and I was it's like oh like but we had what we had wasn't healthy like what I want to do this like so when you finally get that closure and that kind of acceptance you can kind of look back and be like wow, was that actually like healthy? Would I want to do this for the rest of my life? Is mm-hmm. that what I was like looking forward to? And so there is that reframe, I think that can be super helpful. And sometimes it takes a really long time to get there <laughs> and other relationships thrown in or not. And yeah, like, so I would actually, so my, one of my research supervisors got into grief because she was casually working on grief research and ended her relationship with someone she thought she was going to marry. And she noticed the similarities in relationship grief to like people who had lost loved ones, like deceased loved ones. And she was having such a difficult time with her grief over this relationship that she kind of dove headfirst into grief research. And now she's like, she's my grief research mentor. And like, basically that's how she got into it. So when I say relationship grief is hard. It's really freaking hard. Yes. And And I think that we also, to wrap back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show, I, my personal belief is that you get grief shaming far more Mm -hmm. when it's romantic grief than when it's, Mm -hmm. you know, a a loss or deceased grief, because I mean, I think people, I would like to believe that people have good intentions, but it's like, oh, dude, like he was an asshole, like Mm -hmm. get over it, you know, like you're better off without him. Or she was like, so needy, bro. Right. Like, whatever. Like, I think your friends, your family, whoever's saying those things to you means really, really well. Mm -hmm. And that is, in my opinion, one of the last things that you need to hear. And let's acknowledge that. No one wants to hear that. No one. <laughs> for everyone who's listening, no one wants to hear that ever. No one wants to. It's not helpful. No. It, it like, for me personally, it evokes a lot of shame. Yes. Like, it makes me feel worse. Cause I'm like, yeah. okay, now you're telling me that he's an asshole and I still love him. Yeah. Oh, so you're and kind of- I dated him for how long? And you've been thinking he's an asshole for how long or like, right. It's like way to make me feel worse. Like, totally. yeah, so no one should do that. Like, and there is, and I think the extreme of that is like grieving. And I think there's a lot of shame in this, um, like grieving a relationship that was maybe abusive. Mm. And so there's like a lot of shame specifically for those individuals, like when they get out, if they get out, like, let's all hope that they all get out. But when they get out, like saying those kinds of things, like he was such an abusive asshole. It's like, yes thank you for making me feel dumb. Like I was in it or however the case may be. And so there is a lot of policing of grief 
relationships, specifically if other people don't like them. Mm-hmm. Like when they leave very negative comments, very negative. And, um, I have a friend right now that's researching, um, kind of more of like the female brain because listen up guys, our brain chemistry is different. (laughs) Women do not just have a man's brain inside Mm -hmm. a woman's body. They're very different. Um, and the role of oxytocin in Mm -hmm. like domestically violent relationships Mm -hmm. and part of it, right. Our bodies are primed to stay alive. And so oftentimes, and this will happen right when we research Mm -hmm. death and dying, um, the amount of like DMT Mm -hmm. that is basically excreted in your brain at that moment, like to make your passing more pleasant Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, they study this in animals. Like if there's about to be massive attack, like your Mm -hmm. body actually like overdoses in oxytocin because it creates a numbness. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't feel the attack. Right. Um, and so it can be really, really confusing on a chemical level because like you were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. you hug a loved one for 20 seconds and it can release oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So imagine now if that oxytocin release is connected to an abusive partner, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's- yeah, yeah. Just as an aside, cause I love this about oxytocin. So yes, it also helps when you're about to be attacked by an animal, but it was also released in the female brain when you're having an orgasm. So, so here we <laughs> go. Like, but that's the thing is like, if you're like, that's the scary part is if you're being attacked by an animal, you're in freeze, your brain releases this and you go numb but it also is released when you're experiencing extreme pleasure. And so like that pain pleasure line is so fine, but I think it is scary to leave that like, or because you can't tell the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Like your brain and your body are either like, it's like, that's why the love bombing is so extreme. And that's also probably why I'm like, I'm drawing a connection here. I don't know if it's true. I'm going to put that out there, but it might be why it's so hard to leave because there is, that hard distinction. And because like, and that grieving process is so chaotic. I'm so sorry. If you can hear my dogs in the background. So good. Uh-huh. Yeah. When we go live. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They will eventually stop. There's probably a cat taunting them out the window. I'm not sure. The oxytocin <laughs> that is being released in their brains. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it is like, and then the, imagine like grieving that, right. Cause you already don't know if you're numb from fear or if you're like experiencing pleasure and like, you're all sorts of like thrown off. And so like, that could be an abusive relationship, not just with a romantic partner, but possibly with like a parent or like something like that. Like if you are experiencing those things where you are consistently torn between the two, like it is hard to grieve. That's what I'm saying. Like that attachment piece is so big in grief because it like really helps to deep dive into like why it's so hard to grieve or why you might feel like your grief is off or again the stages make a lot of people feel like they're grieving inappropriately right you're you're grieving wrong yeah you're grieving wrong you're not doing this in order it's not on our normal timeline but that attachment piece so and a lot of times we repeat attachment with our significant others and so if we're grieving that loss that also comes out to play like why couldn't I fix you? Like, why couldn't you repair the relationship with my dad? (laughs) Like I'm now grieving like a similar grief that I would to like my parent or whatever it is. And so grief is just, it's grief is messy. Like, I don't know if there's a better way to put or describe grief other than messy. I've never seen organized, structured, like very linear, like clean grief where you just go through it. Yes like louder for the people in the back, because I think everyone that has come into my therapy office grieving expects it to look a certain way just because of like what we've always seen or what people have told us and normalize that it is normal to like healing. is not Mm -hmm. a linear line. We are going to ping pong around and like swirl around in some really messy, yucky, crunchy things before we come out the other side. Yeah. Did you ever see, um, the good place at all? Um, I watched like the first two seasons. So I, damn, I wish I had this undergrad <laughs> because my philosophy class yeah. would have been. so. Yeah. yeah. So you should watch the whole thing. Um, it's great for grief. It is amazing for grief, but also there's a thing called like time 
is like not linear or like circular. It's like, they call it a Jeremy Baramy. And it's this crazy chaos, like basically like spaghetti on a wall kind of chaos of like the way time moves. And that's how I think about and conceptualize grief. It is all over the place at any given time. Like you don't know what's going to come next. You can't know. You don't know what your trigger is going to be. And like some days it can be like, feel like time's moving really slow. Some days it feels like you have no concept of time whatsoever. Other days it feels like you looked back and a whole year is gone. And so it is chaos. Grief is like nothing linear at all and just like madness at its best. So knowing that, <laughs> and that can sound, re- we get it. Like that can sound really scary. We're like, hey guys, mm-hmm. prepare for a mess, prepare for, um, you say spaghetti on the wall. Mm-hmm. I imagine like when I like, <laughs> put my hair on the shower wall, yes. you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, looking kind of like that. So if people are hearing this and they are going through something, they're inspired to kind of start the process a little bit more consciously, what might be like the first step? Um, well, it kind of depends. Are you, so if they're grieving like recent grief or if they're, um, like preparing to grieve or just acknowledging grief exists. Cause I feel like that's let's also, with, yeah, let's go with acknowledging that grief exists. I feel like it's a little bit more of an umbrella. Okay. For the time. Um, yeah. So like, so grief is interesting, um, because a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it exists. And that's why, and people are afraid of it. That's why people go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. But then they don't give you anything to work with. Like they don't, it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, tell me about your loved one. Like, what do you love about them? Like, or what do you miss? It's like, I'm so sorry. And then they like back away really fast. And that's why we go get coffee. (laughs) Like, do you want to get coffee? Like, do you want to talk about it? But with such like a weird, like, I don't know if I can talk about this with you, but it's socially acceptable to offer this kind of thing. So acknowledging grief exists is a huge piece for ourselves, for like, if we want to help our loved ones, we got to acknowledge it's there. Like we have to acknowledge that it is a process people go through. It eventually will happen to us. Um, it's just acknowledging grief. So if we want to, so do you want me to kind of talk about like how we can help our loved ones or, um, I, so one of the biggest things personally, that was really cathartic for me was when people would either share a story about the loved one or like the deceased or ask me to tell them about the loved one that's deceased. Cause I've had a couple losses. And so like specifically, I noticed that was a recurring theme for me is like, I'm an external processor. I love to chat. I talk lightning speed if that no one's noticed yet. <laughs> that's like who I am as a person. So talking for me about them was really healthy. Like even having someone just say, Oh, I remember that story you told me about them. Like they seem like a cool person is so reassuring and so comforting because it's keeping their memory alive. So like little things like that. Um, and then when someone's grieving or even anticipating grief, like, so say someone's experiencing a terminal illness or the loved one is aging, um, like kind of end of life stuff, really, um, be prepared. So when end of life happens, so like when the person, the loved one passes away, there is an uptick for the first two months of like real big support from all sorts of people. You get like the Facebook messages, like you get people delivering food, like old fashioned style phone calls. You're like making preparations. So there's people supporting you if you're lucky, um, like, and you have that support, but right around two months is like really when you start to like mourn, like that's when it really kind of kicks in. And it lasts for like two to 10 months, but that's also the same time that people drop off. Mm. That's kind of where that like, oh, you're done grieving now kind of thing, or my life's going back to normal. I don't really want to acknowledge you're grieving because like I need to get my life back together. So those two to 10 months following the loss is huge for supporting someone who's grieving. Like it could be little things like checking in, asking them those stories, um, like just doing normal things like, Hey, like, let me like bring you a coffee to your house. It doesn't have to be like, let's go talk about it. Cause again, people are fucking scared of death. So like, if you're uncomfortable doing those things, there's other little things you can do, but it's really those months where you can be the biggest support and have the biggest change and actually deter like 
um, like disordered grief. So like, that's when you'll start to notice those symptoms of disordered grief kind of starting to pop up. And And you just define what that is for people who aren't familiar with disordered grief. Yes. So disordered grief, um, is really, so it's not PTSD and it's not depression and it can't be diagnosed within the first year of grief because again, grief is not linear. So like to give any kind of diagnosis is really unethical, um, unless something really like major is happening, like they're grieving with psychotic symptoms or psychotic features all of a sudden. Um, but we wouldn't give any kind of diagnosis and it's after those 12 months, we either notice like no change at all or really sharp, like decrease in like ability to cope, ability to function. Um, like really, so like that means like a year has gone by and the person seems worse somehow. Like they're not leaving their bed. They're like cutting ties with their like outside support systems. They're losing their job. Their substance use is like skyrocketing. Um, they're like not eating at all. They're like way overeating little things like that. You start to notice like bits and pieces. You're like, Oh, like, cause the two to 10 months is like pretty normal. That's when the like heaviest for like grieving kind of comes. And then by two years, people kind of go back to their baseline. That's kind of the normal grief trajectory, a disorder. And like, I keep saying disordered grief. I should really say like, like bereavement. Cause you can't really disorder grief. Grief is just grief. So it's like disordered bereavement. So like the act of missing someone is like, it's, you are not functioning anymore. Like it's getting worse and worse and worse. Maybe you have a good day, but it's followed by five bad days. And that is where you want to start receiving some like outside help and some treatment. And that's why I'm like those first two months, a lot of people are super helpful, not discrediting that at all. But then the next couple months can be really helpful. Like when everyone else stops coming to see you or stops calling, stops checking in, that's when like the uptick of like, Hey, are you still okay? Like, how are you holding up now that say the funeral's over, the celebration of life is over? Like, are you leaving your house? Like, are you able to take care of your kids? Like, do you need me to come babysit them one day so you can grieve alone? Like, those are those kinds of things in that time frame. And it's also helpful, like if someone's saying no, like to give them that space and offer to do things outside of like direct contact. All right, guys, that was your wham, bam, (laughs) quick dive into grief. Um, I know how incredibly powerful that was for me to have like exactly what you said. Like I was bombed by, are you okay? What can I do? Um, And when those start to go away, that's when the shame set in for me. Cause it was almost like, why am I still feeling this? If like everyone's back to normal. Um, so I hope if nothing else, that this episode normalized a lot of the process for you guys expressed that it's not linear, um, invited you to find a new holiday ritual that serves you (laughs) and not the story that you're living in. That might not be yours. Um, for people that don't know, Shay is going to be on the show pretty (laughs) damn frequently, uh, because we just like, if I had a microphone on Shay and I during any given conversation, A, you guys might think that we're psychopaths, but also (laughs) you would probably glean a lot. And I just feel like we talk about some really, really awesome stuff really frequently. Um, So she's going to be on Get Psyched a lot. Co-host Shay in the house. What up? You'll hear me. (laughs) Yes. You'll hear me probably rant less about things. Still be more comfortable. (laughs) Instead of just straight stream of consciousness, you'll hear more like thought out, concise things. (laughs) Maybe, but we love the stream of consciousness. So all of that is to say, if there are topics that you guys would like us to tackle, our goal with this is to a, just like hang out because we enjoy each other. But also we have seen a lot of clients with a lot of varying backgrounds and Shay and I, though we agree on a lot of Mm -hmm. things, also challenge each other to think uh, Mm kind of outside of our own box and find our growing edges with one another often. So if there's things you guys want to hear about, if there's topics that you want help with, um, drop us a DM, leave a show rating and review with what you want us to hear about, um, Shay. Anything else? 
Yeah, I would just say like if I spouted off a bunch of stuff that you want more information on, I tend to like say the literature. Um, I can always provide that as well. So if someone has like questions, comments, concerns about like where I'm getting my information, I can give them that. Right. It's not fake mm-hmm. news, people. Yeah. It's not <laughs> fake news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will provide backing where I can. And I will always try and acknowledge when I'm like, I don't know where I'm pulling this from, but I'm going to make an assumption. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what challenge the process me. is about. Yeah. If you guys don't like what we're saying, we want to hear that too. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll bring you on. Make yeah. You, make <laughs> you challenge know. us in person. Yeah. Yeah. Consciousness. <laughs> oh, all right. Shay, if people want to get a hold of you, where they find you. Um, she has not I, practiced this clearly. I have not <laughs> at all. Um, no, someone could put that. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I think probably the easiest, I tend to be very exclusive with my social media. So probably not there, but if they reach out to you on get psyched on any of those platforms, I could definitely find a way to get in contact with them. Boom. There you go. All right, my guys till next time. Thank you.